Hacker Public Radio, everyone. My name is Soak. Today I'm going to be talking a little bit about encryption. Now, there are many different types of encryption, such as symmetric, which is the same key being used to encrypt, as well as decrypt, for example, XOR. Asymmetric, which is one that uses a different key to encrypt and decrypt, for example, PGP with the email public-private keys. And a few others, such as ones that can't be decrypted, such as one-way encryption or hash functions. Zor, no, that's not my brother. Hi, I'm Zork, and this is my brother Zor. Now, Zor actually stands for exclusive or XOR. It's a logical function. You have and, nand, not, or, XOR. The XOR takes two inputs and gets one output based on those inputs. Think of it like a light bulb with two switches. You turn one or the other one on, and the light bulb comes on. But if you turn both the switches, the light goes out. Logically, naught plus naught equals naught, naught plus one equals one, one plus naught equals one, and one plus one equals naught. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it, but logically that's how different inputs, different outputs. So if you take some text and turn it into ones and zeros, which it is on a computer anyway, because everything's binary, and XOR it against a key, which is also ones and zeros, then you have your encrypted text. If you XOR the encrypted text against the key again, the original message comes back out. This makes it really easy to encrypt and decrypt, and is probably one of the most simplest of all symmetric encryption routines. So if the key was 101 and the message was 111, then 101 XORed with 111 makes an encrypted message of 010. 101 XORed 1010 gives us 111, the original message back. Symmetric, the same key, encrypts and decrypts. Now this can be used in one-time pads. Now these are really cool because if you keep the pads secure, if the pad is longer than the message, so the length of the ones and zeros in the pad is say 120 numbers and you're encrypting 119, 110 or 47. If the pad is longer than the message, if the pad is truly random, and if the pad truly is used only once, it is unbreakable. Now, I don't use that term lightly. I mean, encryption, few things are actually unbreakable, simply good enough. PGP, for example, is breakable. It will take thousands of years to crack it, though, so it's good enough. By the time they crack it, it's so out of date, no one cares. One-time pads, however, are, if you follow the rules, unbreakable. I understand during the Cold War, Russia actually reused some of the one-time pads they used during the Second World War, and America and or Britain, we kept all the old messages, and we just tried and we managed to crack a few of them, but that's another story. They did not follow the rules, so all bets are off. So let's say I wanted to break a message. The first bit is encrypted to a zero. Now we need to know if that was a one or a zero unencrypted. Now if the pad was a one, then naught plus one is one. If the pad was a zero, the naught plus naught is zero. We have both possibilities, and there's no way of knowing which is right, because if we continue through every single bit, we get all possible combinations coming out. Yes, one of them will be the actual message, but because every single possible combination is coming out, you're going to get you know, the works of Shakespeare, you're going to get all that kind of stuff, infinite monkeys and all that. So whilst... I suppose technically it is broken because we don't know which one the actual message is. It is nicely broken. So that's brilliant. XOR is brilliant if you're doing one-times pads. But for storing password, it is fairly weak. 
If you don't want it obvious what the passwords are, but you're not too bothered about if someone does break it in, you're just trying to stop people casually glancing, then use XOR. Personally, I wouldn't touch it for anything but one-time encryption. But for one-time encryption, it's fantastic. So that's all I'm going to go on about symmetric encryption. At least for this episode. I may do more if people want, but I will have to go and read up on it. So that's all for now. Asymmetric. This is PGP. Now, I'm not going to explain exactly how this is done, because the entire world and their dog's done it, and they've gone through the exact way and the ciphers and how this works and how that works and all this stuff. I'm just going to give you a quick analogy and go through it. Imagine PGP. You have a private and a public key. Now, imagine the private key as the old wax seals that the kings used to use. They used to use their signet rings, and they had their seal on it, a very intricate, known as copy it kind of thing. And you write a note, and then you drip wax on it, and then you imprint your ring onto it, and you make a seal. And no one could copy that. Imagine that's your private key. And the public key is being your house with a letterbox on the door, so no one can post mail through it, but only you can get it. So, only you have the ring to be able to make the seal. So if you send a message with the seal on, only you can send it. Now, anyone can read it, but only you could have sent it. If someone wants to send you a message, they go to your house and pop it in the mailbox. Now, anyone could have actually sent that message. You don't know who sent it, but only you can read it. And that's the public and private key of the PGP. If you use two of them together, so if you and your friends both have public and private keys, both are using PGP, they sign the note with their seal, send it to your house. Now, only you can read it because it's at your house, and only they could have sent it because of the seal. To reply, you put your seal on the note and send it to their house, and again, only you could have sent it, and only they can see it. This is really cool. I mean, in theory, it is breakable, but in practice, it's going to take thousands of years, assuming you don't pick password as the password. You pick a very good long password. So for all intents and purposes, it is good enough. And also, in case it does get to the stage where people can look at the seal and break it, i.e. the computer power gets big enough that they can break things, you just make it more complicated. You just make the key longer. So I think they started off with like 256-bit keys, and they're dead easy to break now. So they went to 512, 1024, 2048. In fact, my PGP keys I did, I think, 4096 just because I could. That would literally take hundreds of thousands of years to break. So this is going to be good, because you can just make the keys longer and longer, and that's it. So this is going to be good for a long time. Now, one-way encryptions. At least this is what one of my lecturers called it. Nowadays it seems to come under hash function or a cryptographic hash, depending on what you look at. But I'm going to call it a one-way encryption, because this is what it is. You encrypt it, but it only works one way. You can encrypt it, but you can't decrypt it. You can never find out what the original one actually was. This is using the modulus function. Now, when you were a kid and you were learning how to divide, you ended up with remainders when it wouldn't work out right. Modulus is simply the remainder. So 9 divided by 4 is 2, remainder 1. 9 mod 4 is 1. Now, if we try and decrypt that, if we know 1 was encrypted and we knew it was modulus 4, well, is it 1? Or is it 5, or 9, or 13, 
or 17, or 21, or 25, or any other multiple of 4 plus 1. It could be anything. We don't you know. 401 it could have been. We have no idea what it was originally. So there is no way to actually decrypt it. So I'm going to show you a very simple one-way encryption. This is what one of my lecturers told me about, at least what I remember him telling me about. I did look around on the internet, but there were no real good examples. They either explain nothing. One-way encryption is one way only you can encrypt, but not decrypt. Or they use the level of maths that Professor Stephen Hawking would have to double-check his workings because it was that difficult. Since I'm trying to explain this to you without having notes in front of you, although I'm going to try and do show notes to help, I'm going to try and simplify this. And for reference, MD5 is explained in Wikipedia thusly. MD5 processes a variable-length message into a fixed-length output of 128 bits. The input message is broken up into chunks of 512-bit blocks, 1632-bit little endian integers. The message is padded so that its length is divisible by 512. The padding works as follows. First, a single bit 1 is appended to the end of the message. This is followed by as many zeros are required to bring the length of the message up to 64 bits fewer than a multiple of 512. The remaining bits are filled up with a 64-bit integer representing the length of the original message in bits. The main MD5 op- algorithm operates on a 128-bit state, divided into four 32-bit words denoted A, B, C, and T. These are initialized to certain fixed constants. The main algorithm then operates on each 512-bit message block in turn, each block modifying the state. The processing of a message block consists of four similar stages, termed rounds. Each round is composed of 16 similar operations based on a non-linear function f, modular addition and left rotation. Figure 1 illustrates one operation within a round. There are four possible functions f, a different one is used each round. f, open brackets, x, y, z, close brackets, equals x and y, or not x and z. g, open brackets, x, y, z, close brackets, equals x and z, or y and not z. H, open brackets, x, y, z, close brackets, equals x, x, or y, x, or z. I, open brackets, x, y, z, close brackets, equals y, x, or x, or not z. I mean, that's that's just so clear, isn't it? I mean, you can kind of, you can read it, and you kind of, well, okay, so it sort of does that, and zeros, and the length, and, but it's really confusing. So I'm going to do a really, 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 really simple one. Now, this wouldn't actually work as a hash function because it doesn't change as much as a hash function should, but this is one way of storing passwords. It's a fairly good way of storing passwords. I believe Unix used to do this back in the 80s and may still do. Anyway, so this is hopefully a really simple, easy to understand function. We're going to use three prime numbers now. The bigger, the better. The bigger the prime number, it makes it harder for computers to calculate. Computers can't divide, they subtract multiple times. Now there's a few shortcuts you can do, but generally they just subtract. Think long division. You don't actually divide, you multiply back to figure out. The longer the prime numbers the better, and with computers being the way they are, you probably want ones with you know hundreds of digits and kind of you know big prime numbers. For this example though, I'm going to use two, three and five, the first three prime numbers because we don't count one, because it's weird. This will make the numbers really, really much smaller, so you can actually figure them out in your head. Now you can choose any three primes, although the first two when multiplied must be more than the third, 
my lecturer said this, and I forget exactly why he said it, but I believe it's because it makes it possible to decrypt without having to brute force, because it, it you don't it doesn't necessarily run the modulus. So by making sure the two multiply up, you force it to use the modulus and force it to make it one way. So we take three prime numbers. I will call them A, B, and C for two, three, and five. So A is two, B is three, C is five. A times B, two times three, is six, which is more than C, five. So we're good. So let's encrypt something. Now let's take one, two, three as our password, say. So we want to encrypt that. We take the first number in the password, one, add it to prime A, two. That gives us 3. We multiply that by prime B, also 3, to get 9. And then modulus by the prime C, 5, to get 4. This is the first part of our encrypted password. So 1 plus 2 is 3. 3 times 3 is 9. 9 mod 5 is 4. Now we can do this for each key. But if we did this separately, then it would mean that we could have a list of 1 becomes 4. 2 becomes 3, or whatever the answer is. And each one will work separately. So what we want to do is we want to we want to hide this a bit more by adding that number in as we go through to throw off each one. So we take the first part of our encrypted password, 4, and add that into the second number of the unencrypted password, 2, to give 6. And then again we add prime A to give 8, multiply by prime B to give 24, and modulus by prime C to get 4, that is the second part of the encrypted password. Part 2 encrypted plus part 3 unencrypted plus prime C is 4 plus 3 plus 2 is 9. Multiply 9 by prime B gives 27. Modulus this by prime C gives 2. So our fully encrypted password is 442. So 123 becomes 442. Now this would be the same on any system. So what we can do is add what's known as salt which is similar to cooking, you have a basic recipe, but depending on how much salt you add, it changes the flavour. We add in what's known as salt, or a random number in, or random to this system number, something that's unique for that system. We just need to add some salt in, and we just basically need something from a big choice of numbers. So you can pretty much, you could even just randomly pick a number from one to a million and add that in. It really doesn't matter, we just need something in there just to throw it off so they can't do rainbow tables to break it. Which is, by the way, what Microsoft should have done with Windows XP, but they screwed up. But that's another story. So, if we wanted to add the salt in, we could do that at the same time as bringing in the previously encrypted number. Add that in with prime A to get a bit of randomness in there. I'm not going to explain that. I think this is complicated enough. But that should make a pretty good password system. I believe. Don't quote me on this. This is my understanding. I am. I have some knowledge. I am not really, really knowledgeable. So if someone wants to come down and tell me why this is wrong, please do. I'd love that discussion because encryption is a bit of a hobby of mine. But I'm, you know, I've never done this formally as a job or anything. So it's just what I've read out on the internet. If you're going to use this as a real system, you actually want to use really, really, really big prime numbers. I just picked small ones to make the maths easier. Of course, there is an interesting quote with storing passwords this way, is that sometimes other passwords can actually match. For example, if I was encrypting 628, I would do this quickly, but 6 plus 2 is 8, 8 times 3 is 24, 24 mod 5 is 4. 
4 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8, times 3 is 24, mod 5 is 4. 4 plus 2 plus 8 equals 14, times 3 is 42, mod 5 is 2. So, 6, 2, 8 and 1, 2, 3 both encrypt into 4, 4, 2. I believe, actually, if you force the, th the third prime C to be higher than any possible input, which should be fine if you're using big prime numbers, then this actually reduces this risk, if not removes it. I'm not quite sure I haven't sat and figured the maths out of this. But because I used pr small prime numbers and I was encrypting 6 to 8, and 6 and 8 are, of course, bigger than the third prime number, I think this is why it screws up. So that is a very simple overview of warming encryption and encryption in general. I'm going to stop it there. I'm going to have to write a bunch of show notes for this and try and explain this whole thing as well. But that's about it. Thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, you can email me at zokosoro at gmail.com. That's x-ray oscar kilo echo sierra oscar romeo uniform at gmail.com. Or you can visit me at zoke.org, x-ray oscar kilo echo dot oscar romeo golf. Thank you for your time, and you've been listening to Hacker Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.